Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Connections. I'm your host, Cooper Zimmerman, the Director of Communications for Centurion Wealth. Centurion Wealth is a fiduciary financial planning firm based out of McLean, Virginia. This podcast? Well, this is an exploration of ideas, insight from high-performance professionals, and commentary on all things investing and entrepreneurship. But it's important to remember that this is not investment advice. This series is purely educational, and we strongly encourage you to speak with a professional before making any financial decisions. This week's guest is Randy Fox, and with more than 25 years as a financial planner and business consultant, Randy knows a thing or two about money management. And for the last 10 years, Randy has specialized in estate planning for high net worth families. Think 10 million to 15 million and up. And he has a strong emphasis on philanthropic and family legacy planning. We get into a wide ranging conversation around topics like art as an asset class. Yes, those things like rare baseball cards in your attic, paintings on the wall, or a car collection, these are assets and proper financial planning around them is crucial. We even discuss things like crypto and NFTs. And we end our conversation by discussing a topic that he's become known for within the financial planning world, and that is pooled income funds, a financial strategy that helps manage tax exposure, provide income, while also gifting assets to a charity. So stick around for this educational conversation, whether you're a curious investor or an experienced advisor, because I have a feeling that you will learn a thing or two. Now, let's get to this week's episode with Randy Fox. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Coffee with Connections. And today I'm joined by Randy Fox. Randy, how are you? I'm good. Thanks. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining the Coffee with Connections for another episode. Um, Let's get right down to it. I mean, I came across you, the Sterling Neblet, the co-founder of Centurion Wealth, recommended me to speak with you. But before we jump into, you know, I'm sure we'll talk to the financial planning, some complex estate planning topics. I'm sure everyone is tuning in, dying to hear that. Let's, Let's kick it back and start with where are you from? How'd you get into the industry? And, you know, how did you even come to be Randy Fox, the estate planning, financial planning expert here? Oh, that's, that's, uh, what an interesting path that could turn out to be. Uh, I've been in the business about 36 years. I spent the first dozen years of my working life in a family business. So I'm really grounded in sort of the family dynamic of family business and, and, Honestly, most of my clients tend to be business owners, and I really understand the mm-hmm. psychology, mentality, uh, family interaction, all of the the stuff that happens in family businesses. Because I went through it all, right? Uh, lived it, breathed it, and did it for a dozen years. Um, I got into financial services mostly by accident. I hate <laughs> to say it. Um, uh, actually, ran into an old high school buddy's mother in you know in the hallway and said, what's he doing? And she said, he's doing this. And I thought, oh, I could do that too. Um, and you know, I started down the path and I had a retail practice, uh, in suburban Chicago, born and raised in Chicago, lived okay. here my entire life, uh, with children and grandchildren here, probably never leaving. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, in suburban Chicago had this retail practice. We did the, we were a very early adopter of comprehensive financial planning using written plans uh, at one point wrote our own software because we didn't like anything that was in the marketplace wow. um, t- 
charged fees to do our work, which is unusual at the time, even though the fees were small, people paid us money right. uh, to, to, to get our insights into their financial picture. Um, that got to be old for me. I'm one of those people I like the next new bright, shiny object. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 86 Tax Act took away a lot of the tax savings devices that the financial planning community was using. And along came charitable planning. And honestly, by accident, my two partners said, listen, we don't want to really go learn this stuff. You go learn it. <laughs> uh, and so I attended one of the very early, I mean, you know, all this, you can't make this stuff up. I attended one of the very early trainings that was given by Renaissance, who was the sort of granddaddy of charitable remainder trusts at the time. Uh, and I got I, I got impassioned about it and I thought, okay, now I know this one thing. Right. And I actually taught a number of attorneys in the Chicago area, how to use charitable remainder trust for their clients. And that led to this network of people that sort of started to use me to do outside work. Mm. Um, and uh, ultimately left my practice, sold my practice uh, to my partner who he and I are still good colleagues and good friends. Um, and went off and, and started a business to business, uh, advisory practice, um, so that I could do work for, on behalf of other advisors. And to do that, I realized I was sort of a one trick pony. I knew charitable remainder trust, but I didn't know enough other things. Uh, so I really immersed myself and I took all, every bit of training I could take, uh, traveled all over the country and spent as much money as I made, probably uh, trying to learn and get good at my craft. And, and you know, that seemingly has paid off uh, uh, because now my practice is 100% outside advisors who mm-hmm. come to me with things that they need help on or they can't figure out or uh, where I'm maybe a little deeper than they are in the, in sure. the subject matter. So long, uh, a long way around, to, that's, that's kind of where I came from. No, it makes perfect sense. I appreciate the context. Do you find that when we hear rumblings of, you know, tax law changes, whether that be, you know, maybe a Democratic president elected or, you know, the Congress is, you know, starting to say, hey, we're going to possibly change capital gain tax. Is there an influx of people reaching out to you, maybe in the advisor community and even just individuals saying like, hey, like, how do I plan for this? What do I do? And does that kind of spur people thinking about proactive tax planning in your experience? I, I have to think that's uh, a prime motivator. Uh, I would say the year 2021, well, we have a couple of things going on, right? We have baby boomers that are aging out of their businesses. Right. Uh, it's someone I heard yesterday, that number is 10,000 a day. That's, that's a that's pretty crazy. big number. Yeah. Um, that's number one. Number two, the pending tax law change is accelerating that, right. I think. Because the baby boomers are actually looking up and saying, well, I kind of wanted to work another four or five years, but if the tax hit five years from now is going to get me to where I can get to today with some good work and some good planning, I may as well just cash out today and call it a day. (laughs) Why work another five years and then end up net where I am today? So I think that's what's happening. Uh, This has been a year of incredible uh, I've got a guy selling a business for this amount of money. He needs help. Right. Uh, it happens to me three times a week, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think the pandemic, it forced, I mean, for better or for worse, it made people realize, kind of take a look at their life and say, hey, do I want to be doing this anymore? Am I even the, what I want to be doing? And if maybe, maybe if not, maybe if they do, um, they take a hard look at their their life plan, essentially. Um, but talk to me without getting into in the weeds. Of course, we know we're both governed by uh, Uncle Finra and the SEC, and we cannot give financial advice. So if you're listening to this, this is not financial advice. This is simply educational here with Randy today um, and myself. But essentially, from my understanding, I'll let you explain it, maybe in layman's term, the use of these sort of vehicles, if you will, um, is to not let or not expose all of the sale of a business at once to tax and, and it's to put it in a vehicle that can uh, be a little bit more tax efficient over time. And then if you're thinking about legacy planning, who am I passing this assets down to, um, it's a little bit more efficient of a way to do it. Is that a reasonable, simplistic explanation of the strategy? Yeah, I would say I would say that's a the simplest way to say it, there are a number of, you know, we have this big complicated tax law and there are a number of parts of the tax law that allow individuals, if they will take the time to back up and slow down, uh, to utilize uh, things that are clearly written into the law to help them reduce or eliminate or avoid uh, taxes. Some of the taxes, all of the taxes, part of the taxes, on the sale of their business entities, or if they've already entered into a sale and completed the sale uh, to reduce the amount of taxes they're going to owe in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, we love to get clients before they've made the sale, but even after they've made the sale, there is some things that we can do to help them. Um, so we try to incorporate uh, those tools as efficiently, as effectively as possible um, the, for the benefit of the clients and for the, you know, for the benefit of them and their family. Right. Do you find, Randy, that you're kind of filling a gap within the industry? Because when I look out and I speak with, you know, families and, um, you know, maybe families that are in, you know, one million, two million, three, four or five million dollar net worth, nest, nest eggs, whatever it may be, small business. Um, sometimes it seems like, you know, especially with an older generation, well, they'll say, well, I've got my, my tax guy or gal, and then I've got my advisor. And then it's almost in their mind, it's just two completely separate things. Like my CPA does my taxes, my financial advisor should be managing my assets. Do you feel like our industry, and there are bright lines within our industry of what is tax advice, preparing tax, you know, returns versus strategizing and doing tax planning around your investments. Do you think, is our industry, not that they're morphing together, but is there a, a greater need now maybe than ever for someone who maybe at least understands both worlds and kind of plugs that gap in between tax planning, preparation versus financial retirement planning? Well, I, I'm, my model has always been a collaborative model. I, I think, and I, I, I would love to see the industry move that direction. And I do see elements of it taking place more and more. Um, it's certainly still way too, way too rare that it happens, right. but I think ideally for the client and, you know, we always have to put the client in the center of our, uh, in the center of our sites, you know, what's best for the client. The best thing for the client is to have all of his professional team talking to each other and understanding each other and understanding what the client's trying to accomplish. Um, uh, I've, I've heard numbers of times where, you know, 
accountants have said, hey, pay the taxes. And I've heard a number of times where the financial advisors have said, well, just give me what's left and we'll manage it efficiently for right. you. Uh, the best of all possible worlds is everybody getting together and saying, well, first of all, what's the client want to do? Second of all, what can we do about it? Right. And third, you know, can we get him to pay the least amount of taxes so there's the most amount of money left for him and his family uh, without disrupting his life? And, right. you know, that's, that's, you know, what we all seek to do, I think. Yeah, 100%. And, and there's even, I mean, there's great merit even too to understanding that sometimes CPAs might be more conservative in terms of what they're willing to recommend or do. And that, that might just be the style of that given CPA. And that doesn't mean that someone is maybe maybe a CPA that takes a more quote unquote aggressive approach or maybe tries to be a little bit more proactive. That doesn't mean that they're being any other, you know, unethical or anything like that. It's just a different style of approach. And then if you couple that with a mixed match of a financial advisor or planner, you can see where it starts to getting like, okay, well, I'm hearing like two or three different, you know, schools of thought here when when trying to sit down and do a plan so i do think obviously it's important to you know what we try to do is to you know at least be aware of talk to and communicate with your cpa if not directly work in coordination with them on your plan well and the other thing the cpa you know understands better than the financial advisor most of the time is you know the real tax position of the client uh you know, if they're selling a business, are they selling the assets? Are they selling the equipment? Are they selling their book of business? Are they selling the the shares of the corporation? You know, uh, is there is there recapture that's going to take place? Is there some ordinary income or some, you know, or is there some other interested party uh, party involved? All of the things that you really need to know to help the client best structure uh, their exit plan. And again, in a perfect world, all this would take place three years before the client right. ever went to market. But, you know, we don't live in a perfect world. So right. sometimes it's happening weeks before or days before or months before. And that's we just have to deal with that. But certainly having the best information we can have is just vital to the success of the team, the client, the outcome, everything we ask for. I think that's a lesson too for folks that do, and that's fine that if you're within the financial planning industry and you say, well, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't deal with that type of stuff. I'm more, I'm an asset manager. That, that's, that's fine. But at, at least you owe it to the client to dig a little bit deeper and, you know, help them or at least kind of pull that information out of them around their, their tax situation and ensure that maybe they're, if you don't want to be that involved with it, outsource it to someone like yourself that could help can come in and consult it um, and not just say, well, I'm a comprehensive financial planner and I charge a 1% you know, asset management fee and manage their $3 million and then kind of leave them hanging on other important financial decisions and yet still say you're a comprehensive financial planner to them, that could be misleading, right? You should yeah, maybe no, I, I think the financial planner, you know, quote unquote financial planner uh, title is uh, sort of meaningless anymore. It, it can mean anything. Right. Some financial planners just manage money. Some are comprehensive. Some just sell insurance and everything in between. And right. it's confusing to the client. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, you know, we, we have to think about what the client thinks about, uh, which is who are we and what are we doing for them?
Yeah, I mean, that brings up another good point. I mean, of, of being, you know, a fiduciary and folks that, you know, not to knock on anybody else, but, you know, if, if you're only doing, you know, insurance solutions and then your, your title is financial advisor or financial planner, and then our title is financial planner advisor, but we actually do comprehensive planning, you can see where it's confusing even amongst ourselves in the industry. What, how do we identify, uh, much less a, a confused consumer that, hey, look, if I've been running a mechanic shop for 20 years, I don't know anything about that. I've built a successful business, but this guy's telling me he's this and this person's saying he's that. That's on us to communicate with clarity what we are, where we stand with the client, and hopefully in a fiduciary capacity in, in almost all cases. I will tell you, a confused client will do nothing. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, now let me switch gears and ask you about something because I saw on your uh, a description on your LinkedIn, art succession planning. Um, and it, you know, I don't, I don't know um, if that's something that you, you do quite a bit of, or if that's something that it's it's come up from time to time. But the concept of because you hear this in pop culture, you hear it a lot on you know something on the news or something like so and so billionaire person buys a painting for a hundred million dollars. That might be the most extreme example of art as an asset class, right? Um, but talk to me, I mean, is what is art is classified as what in terms of an asset? And then what are some of the, the tax efficiencies around art when it comes to like appreciation and sale? Well, uh, again, uh, art, art I, I, I do art succession planning and uh, collectible succession planning. It's, uh, you know, a lot of my clients are very high net worth families. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them collect something. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I can't remember the last statistic I heard, but it was like 30% of high net worth families collect something, whether it's art, cars, coins, uh, you know, antiques, any of those things. Sure. Well, those are all assets, you know, and they don't think of them as assets because they just think they're the beautiful thing that they bought at Sotheby's or right. at the, at the, at the auto auctions in Scottsdale or whatever they bought. Um, but how they own those assets and where those assets go when they die are part of it's part of their estate typically. Most people just own their art in their name. They go buy it in their name and they hang it on the wall on their house or they park the car in their 14 car garage. Uh, and uh, when they die, those things are included in their estates and they're not liquid, mm-hmm. uh, particularly. And you know if you have a taxable estate and you owe estate taxes within nine months of the date of death. Um, the things that get sold off are the things that no one knows what to do with. <laughs> and, and that can be the art, co- you know, it could be the art collection. And, and, you know, it, I, I, if you look around, you'll see um, uh, automobile, automobile collection from the estate of, well, there's a reason it's from the estate of, mm. and that's because they're selling them to raise money to pay the taxes mm. uh, because they didn't do planning for them. So like any other set of assets, uh, these have values. They need to be valued properly, uh, and they need to be planned for properly. And if it's providing liquidity to keep them the estate, or providing a way to uh, sell them off in a uh, defined manner and a systematic manner, so you don't depress the market, or if you want your heirs to have certain of them, uh, right. they can't just take them off the wall or drive them out of the garage. They have to have clear title. Uh, which means you, you can't just make them disappear. Uh, you know, so all of those things go into those assets, just like they go into, you know, any other set of assets. Uh, they're just often overlooked 
dramatically. I'm, I'm scheduled to go meet with a family down in Florida in the distant future to see their sports memorabilia. I have no idea what they have, but it's probably several million dollars. That's pretty uh, cool. That's pretty cool for you just to see, like, oh my gosh, that's uh, so and so's yeah. jersey. <laughs> yeah, you got a Mickey Mantle rookie card. You know, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I bought that for twelve bucks. You know, when I was twelve years old. Well, you know, it's worth a hundred thousand. So you know, it's just those types of things that uh, people often just don't think about. So I was schooled in that a number of years ago, and I, I kind of just that's not the main part of what I do, but right. it is a fun part of what I do. Yeah. That, no, that's very, that's, yeah, it's a pretty cool. And I'm sure that's an adventure for you. Every time you get that call, it's like, it's kind of cool just to pop over and see what, what so-and-so is collecting. Yeah, you um, don't get to see a lot of Picasso's live. You know? right. <laughs> well, even from to the standpoint of like someone might find themselves, you know, as the beneficiary of something like that, like their dad, you know, or their mom collected something and um, you know, 150 rare civil war, you know, I, guns or something. It's like all of a sudden, what do I do with that? Is that taxed on me? Who's taxed here? Do I sell had, this? Had a, had a, had a client who had a huge civil war memorabilia collection. Another client that had a million dollars of paperweights. Wow. I mean, you know, someone's got to get a million dollars of paperweights, but you know, we, we better know about it. Right. Yeah. Well, the IRS does not forget. Um, where do you see, I mean, and now, I mean, gosh, even think about the whole changing landscape of this, like this digital art concept of NFTs, and this is all entering the ecosystem. Um, you know, I, I, I foresee financial advisors, our industry catering towards these folks, because it's at the end of the day, it's an asset. If it's going to be classified as, as an asset, I think the IRS and the SEC are still figuring out how, what, what they're going to call it, how to regulate it and, that, and how to keep track of it, who, who reports what. Um, but I do think the industry, um, I, I don't know if a financial advisor now, if you can say, and it's one thing to say, hey, look, that's not my expertise. Let me bring in Randy Fox because he's an expert in this. That's one thing to say that. If a client approaches you on something as a financial advisor and you're not quite sure how to handle it. But I don't think it, there, you could say, I think for a while our, our financial advisors were writing off like crypto and NFTs and the digital world of things almost as not true wealth creation or planning. I think now it's become very real and financial advisors were certainly getting approached by people that have accrued millions of dollars in crypto. And they're saying, okay, well, now what do I do? Maybe I want to kind of, I want, I want this to be more of a traditional, you know, portfolio. Um, we have to know, we have to learn and educate ourselves and listen to the IRS and the SEC what to do with this. I don't think we can afford to um, be on, on the stance of, well, that's just not real financial planning. That's not we real wealth creation. Uh, I, I think advisors are going to increasingly have to focus on that. Have you seen any of that to start to stri well, trickle through? Uh, uh, not as much with NFT, uh, NFTs yet. Um, uh, but I have, uh, we're working right now with two or three clients that have significant crypto assets. And I'm talking in the 20 to $30 million range, um, who need to do planning. I mean, it's, right. you know, if, it, if they're, if the assets are in their estate, uh, you know, if they die tomorrow, the IRS is going to say, okay, we need to get paid. I'm not sure the IRS accepts crypto cryptocurrency in payment. Right. So we have to come up with real cash and which means we have to find a way to cash these in. We do know that they have now identified 
that crypto is property, which means right. it's a long-term capital asset. So we can do things with it, uh, both from a charitable planning perspective or uh, other perspectives that you know we can transfer it as property. We know how to do those things. Um, it, but it is something we need to be increasingly aware of as it becomes more commonplace. Mm-hmm. Um, just like NFTs are going to be another form of art, and it's we're going to need to uh, find ways to plan for it as what well, those items as well and how to transfer them. You know, the big issue with crypto is no one wants to give up their key. Um, mm-hmm. but how do you make an irrevocable gift if you won't give up your key? That's, right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of new territory that we're going to be faced with. Uh, but that's one of the things about this role that's so interesting is it's ever changing. You know, right. we keep on having to challenge ourselves to learn new things, to be on top of our game so that we can deal what comes along. You know, there's changes in the tax law make certain things work better than other things than they used to and certain things not work as well as they used to. And again, it's our, you know, our job to always be aware of what's, you know, what's the best thing, what are the best tools to use today as opposed to what did we use five years ago or 10 years ago? hundred percent. And I actually was just speaking uh, with a, a former guest and he said that, you know, advisors, we can't think of ourselves as uh, defenders of a map, but rather a guide in a changing landscape. Um, <laughs> that was his quote of, and, and it stuck with me well, is that the financial planning industry um, has to think of ourselves as changing. I mean, at the end of the day, we were guiding people through complex decisions. They have resources, they have assets. We are here not to defend the old ways of doing things or by any means instilling, you know, our personal opinion or something. It's like, hey, what are the facts of the situation? What are the laws? Where are your assets? Let's let's guide you through this complex world. Um, and I, I think most advisors understand that, but I think sometimes they're resistant to maybe change. Maybe that's old guard mentality. Maybe that's preserving something that they want it to be and don't want it to change into, but who knows? I just think it's important for us to one, be aware of this type of stuff and then be hyper-focused on, Hey, how can we serve these people? Because that's going to be an extraordinary amount of business. I don't see that changing in the next five to 10 years. I think that's kind of where we're headed. I've lost count of how many tax law changes there have been in my career. Uh, there have been some major ones, but there's minor ones on a regular basis in the 15 or 20, you know, right. so I, if I go, well, you know, back in 86, we did it this way. We got to keep doing it that way. Well, you can't even do it that way. Right. So, right. uh, it, you know, we, we need to be current because it's hard for our clients to keep up. You know, we, by the time they understand one law it changes. Right. And, and so we have to be the ones that are there to say, no, you, you know, that, that's the way we used to be able to do it. We can't do it that way anymore. Time to rethink how we're going to do the next steps. 100%. Now, for the financial advisors listening, talk to me about your practice specifically. How, how, is it, how do you best work? Because I imagine, you know, some people are going to be listening to this that are not within the business, but um, they're just curious about it. But I know a lot of people on my LinkedIn are fellow financial advisors. Um, how does your practice work? Do they reach out to your team? And then like, what kind of role do you yeah. play with them? Well, again, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I actually do this, I do this kind of funny uh, seminar called "I Got a Guy." Uh, <laughs> you know, that's uh, that's my life. You know, I, I get it. a phone call or I get an email, and it is, I got a guy. You know, yeah. I have a client who's selling a business, or I just, you know, someone came to me the other day, and this person just exercised uh, umpty ump million dollars of stock options, or 
you know, someone wants to buy their business or they're selling their real estate or they want to find a way to get the business to their kids or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And depending on the particular facts and circumstances, uh, I will either, you know, offer to engage with that advisor or send them in a direction to help them get the help. Uh, you know, I always, I can't solve every problem, but I know people that can solve most of the problems. And I refer out as many cases as I take in Mm -hmm. probably more. Uh, and you know, I know what I can do and I know what I can't do and I know Mm -hmm. where I can be helpful and I know where I can't be helpful. I just soon give a quick answer and say, just go do this. Uh, and you know, and to be a good resource, uh, you know, my, my job is to be a resource. One more, you know, topic I want to bring up, Andy, is, um, is pooled income funds, because I think they're, you know, from my research, I'm, you know, I'm relatively new to the industry, but Centurion Wealth and Sterling Neblet, very familiar with them. We've been executing on them um, as a company. But, you know, from my research is that they were initially popular, fell out somewhat of favor, but then now you've seen a resurgence of them back again. What's that like? What's that world? I mean, how do you, how do you boil that down for me? Well, uh, the pooled income funds have become uh a favorite tool. And I don't like to, you know, I don't like to use one, one solution does not fit all, but uh, pool income funds have been around since 1969. They're not new. Mm -hmm. Um, They have been the province of large charities. So if you look up pool income funds, you're going to find Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Stanford and uh, the Lutheran brotherhood and a couple of the, you know, big charitable institutions run pooled income funds for their own purposes. Um, So if you give money to the Harvard pooled income fund, Harvard manages the money. And when you die, all your money goes to Harvard, which is great if you're a Harvard grad and that's what you want. Um, And pooled income funds are sort of analogous to an institutional charitable remainder trust. That's the best uh, analogy I can uh, can come up with. Uh, However, they are run by public charities. So you need a public charity that has a favorable donor-facing, client-facing face, uh, and one who does not have an agenda for their own charitable purpose. And there are a couple of those around in the country now. And in the interest of full disclosure, I'm on the board of one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we make donor, we make pooled income funds uh, favorable to facing the donor and the and the advisor. Uh, so that they can use the benefits of the pooled income fund for their, you know, their specific purposes. Mm-hmm. So just uh, you can donate almost any asset, uh, most likely uh, low basis stock or low basis real estate, uh, get a charitable income tax deduction, sell that asset inside the pooled income fund for no capital gains tax. So we can avoid all the capital gains tax on the sale. And we can receive an income for life. Mm. And in the in many cases, uh, and without getting into the nuances of how pooled income funds work, you know, sure. in gory detail, uh, it's often available uh, to give an income not only for the life of the generation one, but also for generation two, or even generation two and generation three, before mm. the money actually travels to charity. And with that ability, uh, a lot of the hesitation about, oh, I'm giving my money to charity and my kids aren't going to get it. Well, if your kids are going to get income and your grandkids are going to get income before the money goes to charity, that's probably all they would have gotten anyway. Mm 
Right. So uh, if we can avoid the capital gains tax, if we can get a large charitable income tax deduction, and we can use this device uh, to provide income for our family, now we've got a pretty interesting combination. And so I've become sort of the beacon of pooled income fund uh, usage in the country uh, for whatever reasons. I've been preaching about them for six or seven years now, and we're finally starting to get noticed and get some traction. So uh, where our gifts used to be, you know, 500,000 or a million, now I'm having people come to me with five and 10 and 20 and $50 million sales. Can we use this? Wow. So that's, that is, that's interesting. So, cause you're right. I mean, people that, you know, say you had a, a hypothetical portfolio of stock that you bought decades ago and then low basis, and then it's, it had tremendous growth. You know, the capital gains on that would be extraordinary. Using this solution helps quote unquote, use that money. Like you wanted to create wealth for your family, for yourself. Um, but eventually it does get to the charity, but along the way, income for yourself and that's drawn now are individuals like multiple individuals can draw proportionate amounts of income out of the fund is that well it it depends on how the fund is set up but typically uh and again in 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 a single family uh so we have mom and dad often and then children uh and then maybe grandchildren Mm -hmm. and so typically mom and dad say well we're alive we're getting the money right uh when we die kids, you get the money. And when you die, then grandkids get the money. Uh, That's often the way it's done. Doesn't have to be that way. Uh, We do have one case now where it's going to be mom and dad and kids at the same time. We just have to recognize that mom and dad are making a gift to the kids and take into account whether or not, you know, they're using their exemption or, you know, they have to file a gift tax return and all those things that go along with that. But those are just calculations that we can make uh, in the course of doing the work that we do for on behalf of the clients. Um, it, it's a very interesting construct, uh, especially, and, and again, we have a pending change in the capital gains tax rate, mm-hmm. a pending loss of step up and basis, all of the things that are triggering people to go, I'm going to, I got to get out of this portfolio now, but I don't want to pay my capital gains tax. Right. And, and then you have, high tax states, I have many, many, many clients in California. Well, when you look at their capital gains tax rate, state and federal, 40%. I was going to say damn near 50%. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you get 40%, you know, why sell? Right. <laughs> so uh, if we can relieve some of that pressure and we're actually working on a methodology now where we'll know how much to put inside the, the pooled income fund and how much to leave out and to maximize the, the amount that we get to keep in our own hands. Mm. And, I, and I can see where, I mean, not that this process sounds overly, overly complex, but I can see where what you mean by ideally this starts, you know, one to, if, say, for example, hypothetically, of course, this is all hypothetical, not financial advice, purely educational. Um, <laughs> that, that just throw that in for the disclosures. Um, I could see where, you know, you just don't boom, sell your business. And then I'll say, now you're just stuck. Right? We already, we sold it within three months. Now suddenly we have to recognize a huge gain versus wait a second. If we know we're about to have a significant amount of money, let's do some proper proactive tax tax planning that could set us up for our life. And this is the entrepreneur, this is the person talking, right? And then, you know, also maybe benefit one day a charity that they favor. Um, I could see where that is important to start that process, not the week before you intend to make that action. I I have to tell you that every business owner I've ever met, and I've met hundreds and thousands of them, 
hates paying taxes, right? right? Have you ever met a business owner who doesn't do everything they can to minimize their tax? And then they sell their business without doing any tax planning. It Crazy. makes no sense. It's yeah. never made any sense to me. If we could just slow them down and say, wait, you know, let's, let's take, let's get ahead of the IRS continually as you have for the last 40 years. Uh, and, and let's minimize the amount of tax you have to pay on the sale. Why don't you let us do that for you? Mm -hmm. uh, that way you, you have a, a bigger pool of money on which to live the rest mm -hmm. of your life, which is what you work for for the last 40 years anyway. Right. That's so true. That's so true. Um, well, look, Randy, I appreciate all of this, this guidance and this, this information. Um, I will certainly, you know, if, if folks listening, you want to connect with Randy, you want to have a conversation or you want to go to one of his, I got a guy uh, seminars. I'm sure he will hook you up with that information. Um, but thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for being, I think not outspoken about it, but speaking publicly with clarity about it, because I don't, I don't see a lot of this in the public sphere in terms of this. I'm glad we kind of captured this here on the, on the podcast, because um, it's an important topic and it's going to, at the end of the day, everything's rooted in helping the client. I think it's going to help a lot of people. Um, so I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to be on today. All right. That'll do it for another episode of Coffee with Connections. And clearly Randy Fox is an experienced financial planner and all around great guy. Uh, but look, he consults with financial planners. So if you're a financial advisor and you're listening to this and you, uh, you know, spark some interest or something, consult with him. He works directly with you to help you execute on these complex strategies on behalf of your clients. Uh, just a reminder that we are not giving investment advice on this podcast. Centurion Wealth Management offers securities through Spire Wealth Management LLC, a federally registered investment advisor. Securities offered through an affiliate, Spire Securities member, FINRA SIPC. But this is not investment advice. This is educational, meant to inform and let you, uh, you know, just hear from people, entrepreneurs, professionals in and around the subjects of finance, business and entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for listening to Coffee with Connections. If you have questions, reach out to your own advisor, or if you want to consult with our team in the proper channels, go to centurionwealth.com or email info at centurionwealth.com. Connect with me, Cooper Simmerman, on LinkedIn, and we can get a conversation started. So thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.